Hey everybody, welcome back to another Listener's Questions episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Colvin Doctor, and it's a pleasure to be back here today to answer some of the questions that you've sent in. Once again, thanks to everyone who's downloaded, shared, and given us some really good feedback on the podcast. We're delighted with it. It has exceeded all expectations. And today's episode is a little bit special because I'm joined by a family member of mine to do the Listener's Questions today. There's also a cameo from another extended family member of a canine variety, which we've deliberately left into the show because I think it represents the struggle of online and remote working in these really abnormal times. But I hope you enjoy the episode and for your questions, you can get them into us on askingforaparent.gmail.com or through the usual Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Well, it gives me a great pleasure today to introduce my sister. Catherine Nocter, uh, a.k.a. Catherine Sharkey. Catherine knows me a long time since I was born, as she's my older sister, older and smaller sister. But she has two children herself, and I know all about her life, but she might want to tell the listeners, Catherine, how are you doing? How are you coping with what is this fiasco of a circus of 2020? How's it been for you? Um, it's, been, it's been okay. It's... I work full time, so work has been incredibly busy throughout the whole the whole thing. I work in, in in the medical area, so there hasn't been a whole lot of let up from that perspective. And I have two teenagers who tended to sleep their way through most of the the lockdown, so that that actually wasn't too bad. Um, the return to school, which I have really welcomed, they haven't. One of them in particular is not reacting particularly well to being back at school, so. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. That's more challenging now, I think, than it was during the lockdown, trying to, to get them out the door every morning. I think you're right. And I think that's probably, that indicates the business of my job in the sense of the amount of emails and questions that I was getting, certainly post-September, were a lot more than the ones pre-September. And I think the reboarding has been difficult. And especially, I think, children or young people or teenagers who were kind of just maybe holding on to their school attendance a bit, you know, not really motivated to be there, but getting through it. Having that massive gap and getting out of the swing of things has really, they've really found it difficult to get the momentum and traction going. And I mean, I know that the volume of concern that I have from parents ringing me and emailing about just really struggling with reboarding and getting back into the swing of things, especially maybe someone who's come into an exam year or into sixth year or something when they've had that gap it's just it's just proving really difficult. But and again, the, the sleeping through lockdown, I think that has been a challenge as well to get that back to some normality, the, the staying up late at night and sleeping all day. And I remember we had this conversation over lockdown and you were the one who said to me, well, what am I waking them up for? You know, when you wake them up at 10 o'clock in the morning to get out of bed, to come down to the sitting room and sit, it's a it's a real challenge. And as yet, I don't think we found the answer to that. But I, I do think you know, it's it's trying to be as creative as possible and seeing this as a as a temporary measure. But hopefully the reboarding process goes a little bit easier as the longer we're back. But I certainly think the challenge of school return has been I don't think you're on your own with that one. But you've kindly agreed to come on today and talk me through some of the questions that have come in. So where will we start? I have an interesting one here, particularly because I suppose the, the comment at the end was you don't hear a whole lot, you know, you don't hear a whole lot about this. So this is a guy who is living with his fiance for uh, three years and her six year old son from a previous relationship. So, you know, Fizzy is a good relationship with the son, but sometimes lacks that connection that he would feel he would have with a biological child and is asking, how do you build a better connection and dynamic with a stepchild? 
Yeah, I think that's a brilliant question. And I think probably a more contemporary question than we normally would have. And I, I think he's right. I don't think we talk enough about the difficulties of being in blended families and reconstituted families are really challenging for all involved, really. And it's only where Mairead Ronan actually had spoken about this. She spoke about how when her marriage broke up, her first marriage, she felt she was unique in that way. And she kind of said that thankfully she's not, she's not, doesn't feel as unique anymore because there are a lot more people in this situation. But I think the issue around being a step-parent is really challenging because the harder you try, it sometimes means the worse it goes. And I don't mean that. I mean, the child has to maybe invite you into their life on their terms. And oftentimes as a step-parent, we want perhaps the pace of the relationship or the closeness of the relationship to pick up quicker than the child does. And again, they're, they're very torn around their biological parent versus step-parent and trying to kind of not upset the apple cart or upset, upset other people. Their loyalties are torn. And so it's really about trying to understand the complexity of what it's like for the child. I think in terms of availability and offering yourself to be there, to be available to them on their terms is really important. And I think it's about allowing them to come to you as opposed to you coming to them. But you can do, you can be passively open by, you know, being interested in how their day has been without nagging them. You can have an approach of being approachable without being pursuing them. And I just think it's about giving them time. I mean, I think from the point of view of genuineness and authenticity, there are two things that kind of come through when you know someone for a long period of time and someone who's there for you or someone who's, who offers that containment to you when you need it. That's as much of an approach that I would take as a step parent is just to be available, to be present, but not to impose myself on somebody. And again, the issue of you're not my dad or you're not my mom is often the retort that comes back when we try to engage in disciplining or try and engage in, in, in the parenting role. And I think sometimes that's unavoidable, especially if you are left with the responsibility of parenting the child from time to time. But it would really be that I, I think it's about, it's about an available, approachable approach that allows them to come to you as opposed to imposing yourself on them. And I think if you're authentic, real, kind, caring and genuine, that will always come through and the child or the young person will see that. But it may take a little bit of time. So I think from every... My, my piece of advice on this one is be patient, uh, be available, be consistent and, you know, take it at their pace. It's not about it's not up to you to create the relationship. It's up to both of you. And like, again, as the adult in the room, I think you just have to be probably the more mature one in this one and allow the young person to come to you. And again, being confused about the relationship is can be an explanation as to why they might not be pleasant to you all the time. But it's not necessarily an excuse. So I wouldn't allow someone to to speak to me very poorly or to treat me that in, in a way that's that that I wouldn't accept from anyone else. But again, it's just about you can only be in control of your own behavior. And so it is about being consistent, being safe, being approachable and authentic. And I think with that approach, it will come good. But my word is be patient. So it's hard because you don't know, as you say, it is fairly new and it's not something that's spoken. So you don't know what it looks like. It's hard to see what that relationship should be unless yeah, you see it work well I, somewhere else. Yeah. And I think it is about you. You're creating and evolving the relationship as opposed to trying to manufacture. There's no instructions. So it'll become what it is. And I think from the point of view of we've all seen the American sitcoms with the ideal stepdad and then the archetypal kind of 
demon stepfather. And again, it doesn't have to either of those. You just have to evolve and allow the relationship to evolve mutually between the two of you. But I think if you're consistent, safe, predictable, those are things that any relationship will benefit from. And the young person knows your steadiness and knows you're reliable and knows you're there for them and maybe absorbs some of the grumpiness from time to time or some of the, the, the rejection. And again, it's just about being adult about it and trying to, to be as available as you can be. But I, I think you're right. It's very hard without a template to know what and where we should be. But I, ju I just think be less concerned about how the, the young person reacts to you, but just being in charge of how you are around them is probably the best piece of advice. So this next person has been waiting for you to do a podcast. Um, okay. Sorry for the delay. This is um, a, a mother of a, a four-year-old who's asking, how do babies get in mommy's tummy and wants to know what the age-appropriate reply is. But secondly, the four-year-old now is reluctant to go to play school and is saying that the carers are grumpy. And this has been brought up at the school, but um, she's the lady's currently on maternity leave and, and thinks that the four-year-old really just wants to be at home with her. Okay. The babies in mummy's tummy issue is at the parental discretion. I mean, there's lots of views on this that we shouldn't use. We should use actual words and describe, you know, private parts and all that sort of stuff by their proper names and, and kind of not infantilizing children around that. But again, I, I think parenting is about pacing the information at a, a level the child can manage. This child is four, so they're not even going to be able to cognitively or emotionally understand the the concept or even the mechanics of, of children being born. So, I, I mean, I, I think it would taper it to, to your child's developmental level. And again, being kind of creative with the truth at that point, I don't really have an issue with that. I think from the point of view, you're protecting the child's innocence, and that's absolutely fine. The second question here is around the child's not wanting to go to school and want to be at home. Mum says she's on maternity leave, but my... The questions about the baby in the tummy issue, maybe mum hasn't had this baby yet. I'm getting that sense. Well, she's in the baby's 11 months. Oh, the baby's 11 months. Okay, yeah. so well then, from that point of view, the, 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 the grumpy carers may not be the only origin of this child's distress. And very likely that, and a lot of children who have been at home with lockdown and been around mum and dad for a considerable amount of time in very intense ways, have gotten very used to that. And the, the return to creche, childcare, school, and the disruption of that relationship has been difficult for many children. So we're seeing quite a lot of anxiety. And again, as we spoke about at the intro, you know, a reluctance to return to the normality when in some ways the safety or the routine or the comfort of lockdown has something that children have gotten dependent on. And I, I repeatedly say this, you know, this, this last 10 months has been the new abnormal. It's not the new normal, but we adjust to abnormal as well. So from the point of view of people adjust to working from home, being at home. And so when we return to some degree of normality, that can be difficult, especially for children. So I, I mean, I think I would explore the, the obviously the origins of the grumpy carers in the, in the crash or wherever it is that she's going. But if you're safe in the, in the knowledge that that's probably uh, her perception of things as opposed to anything that you need to be concerned about, it is trying to support her to be in school, but also... The, the, the issue with attachment is that they worry that if they're not in the proximity of the mum, that mum is not keeping them in mind, that, that when they go into school, they'll be forgotten about or they're not being thought about. So there's ways in which you can remind the child that she is kept in mind and that when she's in school, mum is at home and she might be wondering what she's doing or what she's drawing or being interested in how her day was. And again, the consistency of 
permanency is not something that a four-year-old can really get. They're only practicing that at the moment. So again, the more reliable and consistent the routine will be, the more comfortable with that new readjustment to the new return to normal that she will be. But sometimes it helps for children to take something belonging to mom into this school. It might be a key ring or something small that they have with them. And that can be a kind of a, no, a notion that you keep me in mind and I'll keep you in mind and about that level of reassurance. But at this age, it is important to keep the routine going of going to the school despite the levels of distress. And it's also about telling the four-year-old that, you know, you know she has, she's got this and she can manage it and you can believe in it. And again, I say this from time to time that sometimes we, we don't allow the, the child to trust in the, in, the, in the surroundings or environment that they're going into by creating uh, a more anxiety about it. So managing your own anxiety, reassuring that she's kept in mind, consistently trying to hold to her going and attending on the days that she's supposed to be in there and maybe giving her a little prop to hold in during the day might just help her to remind her. But it is about trying to understand that it may not be, I don't want to go to creche. It may be that I don't want to leave you. And they're completely different things. But it's in saying to her that you're not leaving me and I'm not leaving you. We're just temporarily going to be apart. And for good reason, that you need to go and learn your things and be with your friends and do all the the fun stuff of play school or crash or Montessori, and that, that you're kind of pitched that to her, if that makes sense. The next one is a similar, similar issue, but a different stage in life, um, kind of the move from one God, child. Just wait till the dog starts barking there. And... This, this goes on the whole time. Everybody okay. at work knows the dog. <laughs> so this is a similar issue, I think, but different age groups. So somebody who's interested in the move from one to two children with an eight-week-old and a 26-month-old with the 26-month-old acting out, child has always been exuberant and active and for that reason has sort of been kept a little bit away from the baby and because mom is breastfeeding has spent a lot of time with dad over the last while is in the creche full time but is acting out there as well um, and mom's trying to spend time one-to-one with her but she plays up more when she's with her mom than with anybody else and I suppose she's asking the question that she feels she's getting it wrong and, and wants to know have you any advice yeah, I think there's a very classic kind of attachment issue that arises sometimes in the arrival of a new sibling where we have, I and mean, sibling rivalry is normal. You know, there's a normativeness to it. And I, I think I said in one of the previous ones, if you're in a relationship and someone come home one evening and said, oh, we're bringing this new person in and, and I'm going to have to share my attention between you and them, it's disconcerting and children are no different. So they do feel the threat of their, the attention economy being split in half and that the attention is going to the other person. And again, from this child's point of view, the acting out, again, would be kind of normative from the point of view of that. And you're hoping that it will settle with time. Again, you know, leaving her plenty of time with dad is good that, the, you know, that you're, you're diluting that around. But maybe it's, it's particularly mum that she wants the attention from. And I, again, be very careful that the visibility is not being achieved through misbehavior. So the oftentimes when she acts out, that might be, where she becomes more visible and, and kind of can attract mom's gaze away from the other child. And, you know, visibility is very important. There's a really interesting chat that uh, one of the, I think it was Winnicott, one of the great psychoanalysts says, he, he says the mother holds the child with her gaze. So the idea of the mother's eye contact is, is really important. And children are very competitive for the gaze of the other. So they want you, you know, if you're you remember when you were small, when you when they were small, if you were talking to a friend, they'd almost nearly push their your face to look at them, and they get they get they come with spilt milk and they come with things they need every time when your attention is elsewhere. 
And so this is what's happening here. She sees the other baby being breastfed or being minded or being taken care of. And she's trying to find the visibility. And the only way that she knows how to secure visibility is to misbehave because we, we tend to not, you know, attract our attention to children who are behaving well. We attract our attention to them for being, for being bold or, or misbehaving. And so, again, as I say to, again, in the last episode, I mentioned that if we think about it, we, we go into our children more when we hear them making noise or causing ruptions than we go into them when they're quiet. And so, again, it's just really trying to realign the visibility that she's not getting the vis visibility through misbehavior, but through good behavior. And, you know, it might be an incentive here to kind of, if you manage to not have uh, as much tantrums or if you improve that, that we will do something together, you and I. And the, so the, the reward for good behavior is time with mom in some respects by doing that. And again, I wouldn't leave it totally separate that, that mom takes one child and dad takes another because uh, that can feel that's where you're kind of feeding into the split a little bit. Dilute that a bit where I know obviously dad can't do much of the breastfeeding issue. But from the point of view of other times, it may be something that, that dad takes the other child and mom takes her and maybe just being mindful of the, the currency of attention and how you can share that out as evenly as possible. But it's not about getting it wrong or getting it right, because the mere arrival of a sibling is the problem and you can't you don't have a receipt and you can't give it back. So it's here. So you just have to manage the sibling rivalry as it happens. But I think probably trying to invest in managing it early might lead to kind of pay dividends later on because I think if it's let go it can create a bigger divide uh, and can become more problematic as it goes but in the best interest of this mom she's doing enough and she's doing great but just to be mindful of the visibility issue and the attention economy and try to measure that out like buttons uh, as as fairly and equally as possible yeah it's all very new at that stage you know absolutely again and and you know, children don't come with a manual from the point of view of this. And the, but I do think some of the, the sibling rivalry thing is normative. Uh, and it's important not to pathologize that. You know, we're siblings, yes. And I, <laughs> I don't think you were too delighted with my arrival. But uh, from the point of view of, you know, but we, look, there's three of us. And there certainly wasn't harmony at all times between the three of us. Yeah, I, I can remember, you know, you can remember when we had the Mars bar, you know, you cut it, I pick it, you know, from the point of view of we worked out ways that equity had to be enforced. But yeah, look, a new arrival is new for everyone, but hopefully they'll have as wonderful a relationship as we do. <laughs> yeah, in 40 years time, it'll all be fine. <laughs> it'll be fine. So what's next? Next one is uh, from someone who's worried about their 12 year old daughter who's in sixth class in primary school and is struggling going to school. So this is somebody who used to be very confident, but now is really struggling going to school to the point where the principal and the, re the receptionist is good have to hold the child while the mother leaves and then has had stomach issues and pains, but has been seen by the GP and the GP isn't concerned because it's not, it's only happening in school. So mum is obviously worried about the transition to secondary school, which is coming up and just feels that after, after all the lockdowns and everything that the child is just wants to stay at home. Yeah, again, this is a similar theme in all these questions, which is about the kind of attachment to home and, and, and the difficulties around anxiety. And again, I think this comes down to anxiety. And it's interesting that in sixth class, it's starting to happen. I, I've no doubt that the, the pending arrival of secondary school is a big move. And we mentioned this repeatedly as well. It's a huge transition and gear change for children who have been quite scaffolded in the primary school environment to try and get used to 
numerous teachers and different geography and everything else that goes with it. So this child may well be anticipating that and may well be, be struggling a little bit with the anxiety. Again, this is, this is lockdown fallout as well. Again, a child who gets used to being in the comfort of the, the cocoon of home can find that reboarding really challenging and really difficult. And it's really trying to, to support her anxiety around that and trying to make her feel as safe as possible in school There's, and trying to explore what it might be. The tummy pains and things like that, these are what we'd call psychosomatic pains. And again, these are, they're not just manufactured to get out of going school, to school. The child may indeed feel the pain in their tummy. And again, there's a strong connection between our bodies and our emotional minds. And the, by mere proof of that, if you think about when you get embarrassed, which is an emotion, your face goes red. And so your body reacts to emotion. And so the issue is that the child may well be so wound up about going to school that their tummy pains are, are actual. They feel real. They're just not anatomically originating. So they're not originating from a gastro infection or something like that. They're originating from a, a stress. And so it's important not to dismiss the, the psychosomatic pain because then, you know, it has to almost up the ante in order to attain visibility. But the idea that you you decide that the origin of the tummy pains and things is anxiety and that that's the thing that we have to work on. It is about trying to trying to make this child feel enough and that she's able for school and she's able to manage, you know, the old notorious question, is she unwilling to go or is she unable to go? If it's unwilling, it means it needs that kind of, you know, kind of loving nudge to, to do it. And that might mean having to, to go against what she wants to give her what she needs. But obviously, if she's unable to do it, then she just needs more support in the school to try and manage that environment. If there hasn't been a history of difficulty in school, I'm guessing there isn't a learning issue here or something that's maybe challenging her. But I would always explore that. I mean, sometimes things like dyslexia or, or something like a learning need or concentration issues can kind of go a little bit hidden in primary school and you can you know, only uncover them later on. But that can really affect a child's willingness or desire to be in school because if you're not feeling enough or if you feel like everyone else is cleverer than you or managing things better than you it can be a fairly unpleasant place to be my guess is if that were the case it probably would have raised its head before sixth class so there's something about the change of covid there's something about the, the lockdowns there's and you know school is a very different place than children left and i think we as adults can sometimes underestimate that the the hand sanitizing the standing back the two meters the the anxiety both within the culture and within the new way of being is it makes school a fairly can be a fairly intimidating and unpleasant place to be. And it, it, it makes the cell of school much, much more difficult because it's not the same as it was. And I think for children who maybe struggle with transition and change, that's not easy. So it's a bit of uh, understanding that for her, supporting her, but giving her the gentle nudge. And don't if, if the tummy pain becomes the root of not going to school, then the tummy pain becomes the mechanism for not going to school. So again, it is trying to encourage her to try and get in there as much as she can and to try and manage as best she can in the day. And the days that she does manage, heap the praise on her and really try and overham that a little bit because that's where she'll get the visibility and she'll get that self-belief and self-worth and self-value from that feedback. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a difficult one. But I, I've, it, it, there's at least 30, 40 people who have come with similar situations. And all the questions today are very similar around this readjusting to norm being really challenging and difficult. So yeah, I think the um, impending secondary school move seems to be 
was a big concern there as well from the letter. And, you know, it's her mum has organised for her to go and meet somebody else who'll be going to the same secondary school as her after all the lockdown is finished. But she's also asking, should she take her to somebody to talk to somebody? And I suppose that's something that a lot of people ask you as well. At what point yeah. do, you, do you go and seek help? Yeah, I think when functioning is, is being affected, like the, the child's school attendance and they're not getting in, I think there's maybe you give it a bit of time to see if you can resource the problem with what you have. And that's about, you know, trying to give her encouragement and reassurance and all that sort of stuff. But I think there's a finite about amount of time that you give that before you think, OK, I need another layer of help here. And I would usually say, you know, we give it to Halloween and maybe uh, where are we out now? I, I mean, I think I would continue with what you're doing up until Christmas and see if, if, she, if she's making any progress or headway. But maybe if it's still a difficulty, then it will be maybe accessing some support for her. The problem being, and this is the issue, Catherine, that I, I kind of in, decided to do the podcast is because the act access to services is really difficult and people who this is the the mental health pandemic is really here and and any colleagues that i know in psychotherapy a lot of them are overwhelmed with uh busyness and so the waiting times are long and and you know we've always say to people you know if you feel bad talk to someone but the access to talking to someone can be a little bit more tricky to get than we first imagine and so it is trying to resource people with the the skills to do it this is what this whole podcast is about is to try and reach out to people in a time of need when resources are at, at a stretch and really bursting at the seams. So, I mean, by all means, pursue it and you may be lucky to, to get the right person. But for the smaller age group, the under 12s tend to kind of do better with kind of creative arts therapies or play therapies and things like that. And talking therapies may be more reserved for the older ch children in some respects. But I would still keep trying doing what you're doing for a little bit, uh, maybe give her to Christmas, because I do think the readjustment post-COVID has caused that readjustment period to last a little bit longer than it normally would in a normal September. And maybe we need to be a little bit patient with that, but for sure escalate to try and find additional layers of help if this doesn't get better or doesn't seem to be getting better. You mentioned there's kind of a, a commonality between some of the other questions. This one is, is quite different. It's a 51-year-old lady who is an ex-Montessori school teacher and feels she should know how to handle everything to do with children, but her 19-year-old has become abusive. She's partially disabled and can't work, and he's at home, but he is in college. They pay for, he does work part-time, but doesn't make any financial contribution, and he's become very verbally abusive towards her. One of the comments is, she says, I, I think he hates me for breathing, which is quite a statement, I think, for somebody who's about your child. So she's looking for some advice. Yeah, this is a, it's a really fractious situation. I, I would, would always be an advocate of there's a meaning behind every behavior and we should always explore those avenues and see what's going on and explore anxiety. But this lady's saying that these difficulties have been around since this lad was 11 and it sounds like she has made considerable efforts to try and explore what might be going on. Um, there's also a time where difficult behavior can be explained. It doesn't always have to be excused. And in this situation, I think it is about her laying down what is acceptable and not acceptable within her own home. This is her culture. This is her family being spoken to. This is, again, another challenge of having an adult child, because this chap is technically an adult, although he is her child. He's living under her roof. There is a responsibility on that individual to behave in a way that is acceptable within the family home and the value system of the family home. And 
I think that's maybe hard to change. And sometimes we inadvertently enable that behavior by allowing it to continue. But I think at this point, this lady needs to draw a line under this and say that this, is no, this isn't acceptable and that there isn't a, a possibility that this is going to continue. Uh, this lady has her own health needs, she has her own stress needs. You know, feeling safe in your family home is not a luxury. It's a right. It's a human right. And so from the point of view of, I would really have a, a strongly worded sit down with this young man and say that this is no longer going to be tolerated and that if that behavior were to continue, he has a job and he has uh, obviously some funds at his disposal that he may need to think of alternative ways in which he can live independently. Because I think from the point of view of through the best will in the world, uh, as parents, you know, and this lady said she was a Montessori teacher and she thought she might have all the answers. Like, I, I, I don't claim to have all the answers either. And I would oftentimes need to ask the support of colleagues to try and get a judgment on a call on one of my own children from time to time. But it, you know, just because you know the theory doesn't mean that you can get it right each time either. And maybe we, we make the, the issue as parents uh, of enabling behavior because there are children and we allow things to to maybe develop into patterns and sequences that unfortunately become more problematic as years go on. I would say to anyone, you know, we always have to understand misbehavior. We always have to understand what it might be about. But that doesn't mean that you always have to accept it for uh, if it's not within the value system of your own home. And I would say to you, this is values are as important, if not more important than rules. And the value system is we don't speak to each other like that. We don't interact in that way. And if it has been happening for a period of time, it is about drawing a line under it and giving really clear boundaries around what is acceptable and what is not. And I would oftentimes give somebody a chance and say, look, we'll see, we'll review this in March, but things have to be better or else we are reviewing things with, with a solution B in mind. Again, accustomedly to, to, you know, we can be understanding, but we don't have to excuse being mistreated. And this is maybe where this uh, listener has to draw a line, I think. Yeah, I, again, it's probably not the most popular piece of advice, but it's definitely the one that I think needs to happen in this situation. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to hear the, the reality, but it is, it's there. Yeah, and again, we, we can sometimes enable misbehavior by not dealing with it. And, and in that way, um, there is a, there's a point at which you know, everyone has a limit. And I think from that point of view, this lady is, is nearing hers and maybe needs to do something before she reaches it. The next question is, uh, is, is almost completely opposite end of the spectrum. So this is a lady who's feeling bad because she's enjoying lockdown and uh, she's three school going children aged seven, eight and ten and has really enjoyed getting outside back to basics, not running around, doing all the activities every day and feels, you know, that this is a time when an opportunity to stop and reflect is available and reconnect with the children, which won't ever be there again, you know, feels bad because friends, friends of hers are tearing their hair out trying to, to cope. Yeah, I'm not so sure that's a problem. <laughs> um, uh, but I think from the point of view of, yeah, I get this point that, that she's saying. I, I think that most people have gone through periods of thinking, oh my God, this lockdown is amazing and I've gotten in touch with myself and I'm engaging in mindfulness and I'm painting and I'm doing all that. And then that oscillates between lying on the kitchen floor in the fetal position saying, when will this be over? And I think, you know, this lady seems to have had a more positive side of it for a more enduring level of time. And that's fine. But the issue being that I think from the point of view of 
this listener, that's fine and good for you. But I would imagine that you might be the exception as opposed to the rule in this situation. But, you know, don't feel guilty for, for coping. Go you uh, and long may it continue, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, we all, we've all dealt with it very differently. And, uh, and I don't know too many people who've enjoyed it, but I suppose if somebody does, that's, that's at least one, one person we know who has. Absolutely. Go you. Okay. So the, the last question that I have here from, from your listeners is an interesting one because it's, it's coming from somebody who's running a, an early, um, an early learning center setting. So someone who's running a preschool or creche, I think, who reopened on the 29th of June. And they're talking about the three separate questions, I suppose, about four really, because the fourth one's about themselves, but saying, you know, the, the early years, that interaction is, is essential between her staff and the, the, the children. Um, and obviously that brings anxiety for this, the staff. The second one is the connection with the parents. So again, Obviously, in that setting, normally you bring your children in. There's a chat every morning, a chat every afternoon. And a lot of that is gone now and technology is trying to replace it. And I'm, I'm going to give you the three, first three, and then we'll come back to the fourth one. And then so the third one is about the, the younger children who are probably possibly coping with this and in, in certainly in this setting better. But the, ch- the school age children, so the ones that are coming back in on an after school basis are, are struggling more. And, and it, funny question is that they, you know, they can't play with their school, their friends in school, but then they're mixing when they come back to the after schools so you know they're, they're questioning i suppose the the rules at that stage so they're the first three and we maybe let you answer them and come back to the other one then yeah i think this is really a challenge i mean i i think in all of these cases we have to weigh up the physical risk and the emotional risk in the, in the sense of obviously there's pandemic and there's uh, ways in which we have to behave safely uh, but I fully appreciate this lady's issue around the face-to-face communication around, you know, you, you send your child into uh, an early childhood uh, creche or Montessori, whatever it might be, and you're worried about them and you want to know how they're doing and you want to know, you know, and oftentimes you're, you're dealing with how you, how you pick up how that the person is when they're giving the feedback to you about how they've gone or how things have been for them. Hard to, to replicate that in technology or managing a lack of communication. And I think there is probably an onus on the, the workers here to probably over-communicate, if that makes sense, to kind of contain the anxiety of, of the, the parents on the other side. And again, it's about still although we cannot enter in or, or go into the grounds of the place that that doesn't mean that we're not approachable and i think one of the messaging around the whole covid thing is the social distancing has been really difficult from the point of view of it's given us this idea of isolation when in actual fact it's not about isolation it's not about that we can't communicate we just have to communicate a little bit differently but yeah um so i i, I, would, I think trying to be as creative as possible about linking with the parents to give them reassurance that everything is okay and you know maintaining social distance etc but maybe coming out to face to face with a two meters distance outside might be something that might be a little bit easier to to do the handover than perhaps doing it over zoom or technologically or through an app or whatever what was the second part of that question well the, the other part was about the interactions with the with the the staff themselves because obviously they can't socially distance from the children so it's exactly Kind of way of managing anxiety for them yeah i think the the anxiety for staff is really important and i think from the point of view of you know if you're the adult in the room and i i say this again if you're a teacher in montessori school or working with with small children in this environment and you're very nervous about getting 
COVID yourself or very anxious. It's very hard to not transmit the anxiety. And I would say to you that anxiety is, if not as contagious, far more contagious than COVID, coronavirus is. And so there is a real need for us to manage anxiety. And sometimes that's, we say that's just about parking your anxiety or bracketing it off or not letting people see it. But I would say there's a real space, and I know everyone's busy, but there's a space for the, the team here to kind of open up and be free to be open about their own anxieties amongst each other. I mean, I, I would say to you, in anything like this, culture is really, is really important. The culture of the team, the culture of the people working in the unit. And when you're looking for somewhere, you, know, you can have the most impressive buildings and fancy materials, but if you don't have a nice culture within your team uh, or a safe culture or an open culture within your team, it can sometimes be, feel very toxic place to work. And I think opening up the dialogue with your team to be open about their anxieties, to be able to name how they what they're worried about, what, how they're feeling on, on different days. And maybe, you know, five minutes before the, the work shift starts that people are checking in with each other, how they're doing. And if somebody's particularly struggling that day, that someone else might be able to step in. But cultures are really important. And, and the, a bad culture, like I remember, we, there was, remember cases recently of, of, of cases and crashes and things that were, had really been dreadful in the prime times and things like that. And you say, how could all these people work in one place? Like, uh, and I remember one said, how did all these bad and evil people come to work in one place? And it's not about people working in the one place. It's about the culture of the unit. So what is acceptable, what is expected, and what it is. And it's really important to invest in the culture of a team, that each person there feels safe, they feel engaged, they feel supported, but also they feel heard. And I think as a manager of a unit like that, it is about allowing people to express their anxieties and worries about keeping safe within the environment, but also re encouraging them and supporting them to feel as safe as possible, because inevitably that will pick up, the children will pick that up too. The difference in terms of rules in school and the rules in crash, I mean, that's a difficult one for anyone to get their head around from that point of view, and children kind of questioning the, the school routine. If we're allowed, we don't have to social distance here, we do there. There's so much about the messaging around the pandemic that has been inconsistent in terms of, you know, you can have, uh, you know, people saying, oh, you can have six people to a funeral and one person to your house or whatever, and you can, you know, I can meet my parents in the pub, but I can't meet them in the garden. And, you know, so there's been all those sorts of things. And children are confused by the messaging as well as adults. Um, and I just think you have to be clear about what the rules are within your organization and within your culture, and maybe not engage in trying to compare that to others outside. The only variable you can control is the one that you're in charge of, and I suppose trying to keep it uh, as localized as that as possible. But again, it'll be how your staff absorb their own anxieties, how they're able to express it with, between each other, and then being able to process the anxiety together and feel supported, I think, will make for a healthier culture. Okay. And the, the other question that this lady's up asking is, you know, who, who minds the minders? Um, she's spending her, her weekends and evenings worrying about getting a call about a positive case or how to plan or what to do or the staff issues because of COVID. So, you know, on underlying all of that, the concern of the, the financial security and the safety for the children and staff. So she's saying, is there any, any switch off strategies or ideas as to, to try and help her to manage that stress and, and, and concern? Yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal in terms of the stress levels that a lot of people are under in terms of the, the even if there's no positive cases in your team, there's the 
anticipation that there might be one. And, you know, many of us are, and I've heard so many people talk about sleepless nights and how stressed things are. I think, and, and again, if I was to look at this around, you know, what would be my top tip for managing your own mental well-being and mental fitness in a time where the access to money, many of the things that we would use for mental fitness are not there. Again, we talk about mixing with friends, socializing, having hobbies, having passions, distraction, uh, productivity, all these things are, are not available to us. So we have to be really creative about what it is we do. And rather than getting prescriptive into you should go for a walk or you should do this, because I, I was mentioning to a student the other day I was chatting and she said, if somebody else suggests that I go for a walk, I'm going to lose it. And again, it was a, a real moment in time that, you know, when we hand out these kind of pieces of advice, that maybe we're the 10th person that has suggested that in one day. But I would say, and this is something I, I will probably cover in an episode different to this, my go-to personally for all of this, and, and long before it, has been the four to seven rule. And I genuinely believe if we rate things out of 10, where we run into trouble is one, two, three, and eight, nine, 10. And it's about trying to say, where is my stress level at? Is it eight, nine, 10? Well, then I need to do something, whatever it is, to get that down to seven. What's my energy and exercise levels like at the moment? Well, it's two and three. I need to push that up to a four or five. And it's really mental health and well-being comes down to moderation. It comes down to equilibrium and balance. We very rarely run into problems when we're in the middle. And I think in some respects we need to have, and you know, it's not a race for mediocrity, but it is a, a, the safety is in the middle. The, the difficulty is in the extremes. And it's really, really, really important that we just try and keep in that middle, keep where it's safe, keep as balanced as we can and keep a check on ourselves. And again, giving yourself some compassion towards, you know, giving your, cut, cutting yourself a break, reducing the pressures on yourself and scheduling time for you uh, and trying to do that is really important. But trying to keep within the four to seven would be my absolute piece of gold dust when it comes to trying to cope with things, because it's oftentimes when we don't do enough of something or when we do too much of something that we run into trouble. Does that make sense? Yeah. And on that note, uh, Catherine, uh, there's a lady, Kleena, who has gotten in touch with me about support for parents out there. Uh, and she has uh, service. She, she said doing the best we can was a thing they set up online five years ago to provide information and support to parents and guardians and those indirectly affected by mental health difficulties. They have a, they're opening their first hub in the north side of Dublin recently, and services are provided free and concentrate on parents' understanding of their children's difficulties, diagnosis, and contact for medical support, peer support, and similar situations so that people don't feel alone. There are many aspects of support when it comes to parents supporting their children, uh, and they cover areas to kind of uplift parents and help them through their journey. The online services are available on one-to-one -one Zoom calls and peer calls, and workshops are designed free of charge to help people cope with the, the COVID-19 worries in the community. And they also work alongside companies to provide access to workshops to parents who have full-time positions. And they're entering into a critical stage with COVID and they're putting together kind of information for parents who are struggling. And they can be contacted on doingthebestwecan.ie at Instagram and the website doingthebestwecan.ie as well. Uh, so anyone who, who wishes to kind of access something like that or some sort of services. And again, through all the struggle that we're going through, there's really a, a resilience and a digging deep. And I think one of the things that has really impressed me through all of this is that kind of stirring of the value of community and the collective, you know, 
we're in this together is a kind of an overused phrase, but I do think it has tested us and tested our mettle and uh, as, a, as a population and as a group of parents who are going through homeschooling, COVIDing, trying to reboard, trying to get through the worries of attachments and all the stuff that we're talking about through all these episodes, people are doing a really good job uh, and we are really, and I, I said this in the end of most episodes, maybe we're not failing anything, maybe we're surviving everything and I do believe that we need to cut ourselves a break. But I'd like to thank my sister, Catherine, for joining me on the episode today. Thank you very much for coming in and not telling listeners anything about me or my childhood that would ruin my career. And for all of you who have been listening, thank you very much. Just in one of the things I was thinking about in terms of the current pandemic issues, and one of the questions that came in there about people working in schools and Montessori's, and I'm just thinking about maybe there's a distance from our contact with teachers that we would normally have and we can sometimes feel a little bit that we can't maybe access the teachers at the moment in the way that we would have before. Not only accessing them to maybe get some information from them, but maybe we need to access them to let them know that we are really appreciative of the work that they're doing at the moment and we need to appreciate that being a teacher at the moment in any school environment, or be that primary, secondary or in the early, in, in the early years intervention, it's really tricky. And I was just thinking, maybe this week, listeners, if we just sent an email or a text or something, you know, out of the blue to your child's teacher to just say, listen, thanks, I know it's really hard what you're doing there, and we really appreciate it. I just think maybe that might be a help for their mental health and for their own well-being as they're trying to manage these circumstances, you know, which are not easy at the moment, not easy for any of us. So... If you are struggling with anything, as I say, please get them into us on askingforaparent.gmail.com or through the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. As always, as always, it is a pleasure to chat to you and try and answer your questions and give you some advice. And until next time, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. <laughs>